This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. There's no duty. Welcome to the Beauty of Horror season finale. Yes, dear listeners, I'm going to be taking a short break after this episode, but fret not. The show will go on. I'll give more information about the new season at the end of this episode, so please, please stick around until the very end. But to kick things off appropriately... The Beauty of Horror is a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today I have a special treat, as for the first time here on the show, I am joined by not one, but two very special guests, and three if you count uh, Mercy the Cat, who has tried to join me just now as well. (laughs) But uh, to introduce first... He is a horror podcaster, writer, and journalist. You can catch his beautiful voice in his show, Brother Ghoulish's Tomb, where he narrates short stories, reviews horror films, and conducts film analyses with guests. Beautiful welcomes to Brother Ghoulish himself, Ryan Kinney. Welcome aboard. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Really happy to have you on. So thank you so much. And joining Ryan on this episode is another prominent presence in the horror sphere. She is a professional host, cosplayer, and content creator. You can catch her streaming predominantly horror games on Twitch, pick a social media outlet, and you will likely find her there entertaining the masses. As her Twitter handle implies, she does not know gravity. Beautiful (laughs) welcomes to Zero Gravity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the beautiful welcome. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy you enjoyed it. Uh, I am super stoked and excited to have both of you on. I've been wanting to get each of you on the show for a while. It's been in my head for some time. And then when I thought of doing this episode, because another first for this is normally I get the guests to pick something. But I was like, for once, and especially for a finale, I think I'm going to bring in a film. But then I wanted to make it a special thing and bring in some voices that I thought were not only just very appropriate for it, but just really awesome. And I really wanted to talk to So <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. So I got, I got a two for here. Super excited for that. Uh, but before we jump into our discussion on things, I do like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. This can be from philosophy or the filmmakers themselves. And normally I go for the philosophy angle, but I've decided Because it's the finale, because we're kind of closing things down for a season, I wanted to kind of go back to where I started in the very first episode I had starring Danny Bethay when we were talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth and the Devil's Backbone. I wanted to bring in the same quote and see if we can analyze it in, you know, context of this film, but also for listeners who have been listening from the very first episode, see if this quote resonates a little differently now that we've learned a little bit more philosophically about beauty. And that quote is, there is beauty and humility in imperfection. I will reveal a little bit later who said that, but if you've listened to episode one, you already know. Uh, But first, 
let's talk about y'all's relationship with horror. Uh, Azira, let's start with you. What is so special about horror to you, and, and how did you get into it? Well... I, well, first, I do want to say it's funny that you bring up this quote because I believe today on the day in which we are recording is Danny's birthday, it which is, is a fun fact for you. Yeah, happy birthday, Danny. But uh, my relationship with horror is, well, one, I think it's just the best genre, period. Um, I think it's the easiest way to escape, you know, a lot of us nerdy folk use media to escape our personal lives and just, you know, cold cut i think there's no better no better way to lighten up the view in which your your current situation is uh, as to you know jump into a crazy situation um <laughs> that will make anyone's terrible life seem not so bad but um <laughs> in, <laughs> in a better answer to that question would be i i think it's a beautiful social lens um, and we really can uncover a lot about society away from that movie um, when when we pick these movies apart. I think fear says a whole lot, a whole lot than than any other emotion through media can convey. And there there's a lot to unpack in just that one emotion, um, which is why I think horror is so cool. I, I got into horror a little bit later than the rest of the horror community, I would say. I started watching horror um, around middle school time. Um, it started with manga. I was really into horror mangas. I, I would uh, read them like um, illegally on Reddit because you can't, couldn't <laughs> get them anywhere else at the time. But I was really just a scaredy cat. I was scared of, of everything, and I do like to repeat this story in hopes that it might help somebody down the line, but I was so afraid of everything. It was so bad. I was afraid of automatic flushing toilets for like literally no reason at all other than like, Oh my God, what if it flushes before I'm done? What if I fall in? Oh my God. Like, and it would terrify me to the point where I would just not use automatic flushing toilets. Forget that. I'm going to find the handicap bathroom. But at a certain point in my life, I was like, hey, I can't be scared of everything for the rest of my life. This is no way to live. So, I mean, as middle school logic was formulating in my brain okay how do i make myself less of a scaredy cat maybe if i just watch all the horror movies and read all of the creepy pastas and you know submerge myself in everything that's terrifying then maybe i will look at life a little differently and i can't say that it worked for sure um <laughs> no. i think i just have a little bit of a tolerance now but i did find something much greater other than you know self-security i found i found an escape i found a fandom i found a community whole bunch of great stuff and you know long story short horror is the best genre damn that is you know yes to all of that and also yeah also to the automatic flushing toilets by the way i was fucking scared of those things for a long time too because i'm old enough to have like that transition of when they just started randomly <laughs> rolling them out and although you know i know like the mom built for this because i was like five or so and the urinals and stuff started getting it too and i was like mm, uh it just screams at you randomly and you're like oh jesus uh, mm -hmm. I, I have a strong like startle response to things so i see exactly where you're coming from with that and um, thank you i'm glad that middle school me is not alone <laughs> no not at all <laughs> not at all uh but yeah you know that is very beautifully put thank you 
couldn't have put it better, especially when it comes to the community aspect here. Um, speaking of which, Ryan, same questions to you. Like, uh, what led to you know the formation of your wonderful tomb? I decided to do the tomb because do the tomb <laughs> because um, <laughs> at the time the world had shut off and we were all at home. And I'd always loved horror and I'd always loved writing. And it felt like a good chance for me to finally do something in my passion with some of the free time I had. And I didn't actually expect to find what I came into, which was a tribe. Like I met so many great people and it's been such an amazing adventure Um, because outside of like doing Brother Ghoulish, I mean, I'm not surrounded by a lot of people who get horror I feel like a lot of it is just people saying, oh, I don't do horror or it's just not my thing or whatever the case may be. And what's been even more fun is most people have seen a lot more horror because uh, because of it. So I'm always constantly exposed to different things and it's helping me fall more in love with the genre. And that's just where it's at. Like growing up, though, like I grew up in a horror household, like and I've told this before because like my parents... They don't like the same types of horror, but they do love horror. And my father, for example, was obsessed with Blackula when I was growing up. And he even wrote like an unofficial sequel to it because like he <laughs> loves Blackula so, so, so much. Um, and he's even working on like his third installment to this unofficial saga that he's been writing. This, like, he just loves Blackula and he loves vampires. And like my mom loves Annabelle, which I don't, I don't understand why. <laughs> But, um, like, she's obsessed <laughs> with Annabelle. And, like, I just, but anyway, like, growing up, I wasn't supposed to be watching the stuff I was watching. So I was sneaking to watch it. And I fell in love with horror through seeing Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, um, which is a very old ass oh, show. Yeah. Um, the Outer Limits. Um, I liked Trilogy of Terror. I liked mm. Creep Show. There were just all these anthologies that just made me fall in love with it. And I was that spooky kid who, always like i had like a real ass emo phase like that <laughs> that like i would you know read edgar Allan poe i was like yes, I never, I, like before i was even like a preteen i was reading poe and i didn't know this was weird until i look back in retrospect even like mm-hmm. my freshman year of college we had to memorize a poem and recite it i've never told this story before but i just i just want to tell it now um i memorized the raven and I like <laughs> did it for the class, and literally everyone looked at me like, "This dude is really strange. Like, what the hell is going on with him?" <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was everything. Like, I've always had this love for not just horror, but just things that were like spooky or in like that range or like on that side of the fence. Man, it's kind of like the girl off of Beetlejuice. I can't think of her name right now, but her character, when she's talking about how people are so repelled by spooky things and she's just like abnormal and she embraces it, I felt like I grew up in that vein without really knowing what it was. I've always liked spooky things. And now being Brother Ghoulish meant I could celebrate that constantly and actually have people, as I'm screaming into the void, scream back at me and say, we're in the void together and we're loving it here. You know, we have the best refreshments. We have the best, we have the best everything. (laughs) That's why Zero, when you said like, it's the best genre, I feel like that too. Like horror is just like that space where you can have so much free range. It's dope. Like I love horror. Ah, I, I'm I'm just loving all these stories too. The the the, the relatability of all of this, you know, we, I think (laughs) one of the things I love about this 
genre as well is those who have a connection with it. I think even if we can't share our tastes all the time, (laughs) we share that feeling. We know exactly what it's like to kind of be on that little fringe side talking about all this weird shit that nobody gets. But then the moment you hear somebody else who gets it, you're just like, yes, Mm -hmm. It's, it's validation to such a degree that then, you know, that, it's okay to be this weird. Uh, <laughs> no, that's honestly is one of the best feelings. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you had Poe. I had Poe too a little later in life, but I had Irving uh, when I was, you yes. know, preteen. I was, and I didn't realize it was weird either, but I was like the kid checking out the uh, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow like every damn week, just renewing it. I hope nobody was doing a book report on it because I had it. <laughs> too bad <laughs> too bad i owned it from the, from the school library so i get that the moment you're telling the post story it's like mm-hmm, yep different context but exactly the same feeling exactly the same like oh none of you okay well i'm, I'm gonna do I'm, i'll do me now bye uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so cool and the this is what this podcast is all about too it's come from a kind of academic space because my own academic work, I'm, I'm really struggling to get through my master's thesis with all the work that I have to do and stuff. So this, this grounds me a bit with some of the research I've had to do for it. So of course I'm talking about beauty in that sense, but I'm also looking at this community and I use that word not in the grand narrative encompassing as if there's just one community the way that it can be, you know, used or abused sometimes. Like there are pockets of communities, but I just more mean the sense of community that we have. There's a beauty there that I think is worth celebrating. And just these two conversations, I just have to just to bring up the fact that like that this is this is a perfect bookend for the season, like just to start things off. So Beautiful, yes. lovely stories. And I, the, uh, uh, one question for you, Ryan. And I know this is like, I know that we're talking about a different movie today, but uh, you mentioned Beetlejuice in this context. Like, did you grow up watching Beetlejuice? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I w- w- okay. We're, we're going to have to talk about this sometime. Because like, that is like super important movie to me. Probably one of the most. So um, just like anybody who ever wants to talk Beetlejuice, by the way, if you're listening, please. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, I think you're, you're spot on. Lydia Dietz is a perfect, uh, I think, encapsulation of how a lot of us feel or have felt. So even if you come in later, like yourself, Zero, I'm sure that, you know, you said manga. And like, let's, let's face it, that's kind of parallel to this as well. It's its own niche. It's its own thing. Nowadays, maybe a bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm. But horror is mainstream as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. But it's know, the pockets. Yeah. Like when I start when I first started reading horror manga, like I was I I don't want to I re- listen I really don't want to be that hipster that was like I was there first, but I was reading Junji Ito before you could find hardcovers anywhere, let alone in English. Nice. You just couldn't. So the only place where I could read my my shit was was in the depths of of Reddit. And I had that same feeling. Like the first, the first Jinji Ito story I read was Gyo, um, the the death stench reeks. And mm-hmm. I remember it was a um, teacher that came over my shoulder 
and was like, this is <laughs> this is inappropriate. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like this guy, Junji Ito, he's he's epic and he's he's a legend. I'm trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unfortunately, well, unfortunately and fortunately, it wasn't until later in Junji Ito's career that he finally got his flowers. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. and he's very mainstream now. But honestly, I'm thrilled about it because now I have hard copies of everything that I've read back in middle school. I have merch. I have freaking pop figures of yeah. of his characters, which, you know, it's, yes, it's mainstream, but from the girl who was scared of automatic flushing toilets, and now I can have these collectible items that remind me of that escape that I was having, you know, running from class and hiding in the bathroom and reading manga on my phone, you know? It will maybe not on my phone. This was middle school, so it definitely was not a smartphone. But you get what I'm trying to say. It's uh, it's a different time now, and I think that that feeling still holds. It's it's just different now because now I can get some merch, and I'm fine with that too. I'm actually very pleased. I got like Junji Ito sweatpants. My my bedspread is like the the manga covers. It's great. I'm having a great time here in the horror community, folks. If you're not in here, then you're missing out. Real talk. Hard to agree with that. Yes, like why? Why choose boredom? That's kind of how I feel about <laughs> it. Sometimes live just just dive in, you know. Yeah, choose, choose your thing, stick with it, and uh, mm-hmm. have fun. I, I love yeah. like when, but I will say that I feel like that hipster attitude. I mean, also we're kind of showing our age a little bit, calling something hipster. I suppose. Yeah, like, I, I guess know. so. You're right. Yeah, but I mean, what I was gonna say as well is like, isn't a hipster nowadays just another way of saying like I'm older than everybody else? Because I, I guess, <laughs> I yeah, you didn't have. Um, <laughs> You'll never know what it meant to 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 click three three times in order mm-hmm. to get the letter E. You'll never know. Back in my day, no one knew what a Junji was. The search bar didn't show anything. I had to go through five pages to find it. Oh Christ! Ah, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> I love Junji Ito, but I got into him later. Like I only got into uh-huh. him maybe like a few months before I started doing Brother Ghoulish's Tomb, like before mm-hmm. the quarantine. And it was because of a YouTuber, believe it or not, because they were exploring how you can convey horror in different media and mm-hmm. how it will, you know, impact the scare. And mm-hmm. I had never heard about Junji Ito. I'd never heard about him, but he used him as an example of how manga or even comic books can basically still scare you because Junji Ito is a master at, making the final panel something that you're scared to see what's on the next page. And then when you do flip over, it's like full page art and it's literally like people's faces missing or like whatever the, and it's done. So it's beautiful though. Like, like Junji Ito, I'm a fan now. And the first thing I read though, uh, was Uzumaki. And now I've read at this point, like four or five, I'm actually looking at the books because of the way the tomb is organized. Like I have all his books on the top shelf with my Octavia E. Butler books. Because I love him like a lot. Like he's 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 boss. I suggest like if anyone listening hasn't heard of Junji Ito, like honestly go to your local store because like they're saying like he's mainstream now. Cause that's how I got into him. He's mainstream. So like he's on the shelves. Start with Uzumaki or Tomie. Like both of those like are just yeah, great places to start. Yeah. And if you're a sick fuck, then maybe start with Gyo. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It's really gross, man. I don't know why it's so short though. Like I wish it would have been as long. It's so as, gross. Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Well, there you go. There's some suggestions. See, I told you we just be talking. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think I've ever actually sat down and read a, a full Junjito story. It's been a while. I feel I, like you'd love it. Oh, I would. I love everything. I, I mean, I, I know some of the stories because I've also seen like reviews on, on YouTube, so they like mm-hmm. map it out and stuff. And I, I got into it because yeah, it got memed to death. So that Reddit, mm-hmm. those Reddit people. <laughs> Suddenly, yeah. when when you see this meme of like you know waking up on a Saturday, I'm like, what the fuck was that? Mm-hmm. Like they chose the most hardcore image they could to just convey like the most mundane emotion they could find, and I was like, okay, yeah. I need to find out what this is. And um, since then, like I think I kind of found out more about his work academically, bef- mm-hmm. you know, before really getting to just sh- sit back and chill and, and read some of that. So I'm looking forward to yeah. doing that one day. Take a long Absolutely. holiday, get some juicy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But we're not talking about Junji today. Let's we were, go. Yeah, let's do this. So, okay. Uh, I normally get the guests to say this. So I'm going to see. It, we're on the internet. It, this isn't going to be the most well-timed thing. But, you know, I love doing this in in like at my work. If we have an online game, I love trying to get people to like, sing happy birthday at the same time on Zoom. So what I want you two to do <laughs> is count down like three, two, one, and then say the name of the film that we're talking about today. Okay. So y'all, right. what is the film today? Candyman. Yeah, yeah, we are, and not just any version either. It is Nyada Costa's Candyman from mm-hmm. this year, twenty twenty one. Whew, for those of you who are not familiar with this film yet, which I can understand if you're a little hesitant to go into the cinemas, maybe you missed it on the brief time it was on streaming. And fortunately, it's about to come out on a home video and a VOD, so you can check it out whenever you, ne- you need to and want to. Here's a brief synopsis with as few spoilers as possible, just to give you a little, little taste, you know. So uh, this is what I have written down for it. It is uh, after getting her boyfriend a spot at the gallery she works for, Brianna Cartwright struggles with the pressure of juggling her relationship and her professional life. Her boyfriend, Anthony McCoy, is also struggling with the pressure of producing a work of art worthy of Brianna and his reputation. He finds inspiration from an old urban legend told at a family gathering. The legend of a white woman who went on a rampage in the predominantly black neighborhood of Cabrini Green during the 1990s. Anthony becomes obsessed with exploring the gentrification of the area, which leads him to William Burke, a man who has spent his whole life in Cabrini. Burke tells Anthony about the ghostly figure said to have been spotted in the area over the years. Candyman. Anthony's obsession drifts from the damage done to Cabrini Green over the years to the mystique of the Candyman. His work begins to reflect this, which reawakens and unleashes a powerful force that had been dormant for far too long. I think that's a a pretty general gist without giving away the the actual details, which we're about to do now. uh, We do talk spoilers on this uh, podcast, so uh, go nuts with what we're going to talk about here today. But uh, you know what? For once, I will kick things off since I'm the one that brought it in. And the reason I needed to talk about this, I remember I reached out to the two of you pretty much right after the movie came out. Uh, (laughs) We just had some, some technical, you know scheduling things as well and i'm happy we finally got to do this and i think this timing i actually kind of prefer to you know the capitalizing timing so i'm like "Mm, 
we let it marinate. We let our, our brains yep. really sink in. So I'm like, this is, this is going to be good. I can already feel the vibe in the air. And the moment I saw this film, uh, well, actually, from the moment I saw the trailer, I was just shaking, basically. Candyman has always been probably the most frightening figure in any horror film for me ever. And I think it's because he was introduced to me as the urban legend first. So we were doing Candyman in the bathroom far before I ever knew there was a movie. I thought they made a movie out of the urban legend when I was a child. So when I saw the movie, I mean, of course, I realized, oh, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. This was just a (laughs) this movie just made such an impact that it really kind of caught on. But still, it didn't change the fact that the mystique and the feeling and the vibe of this character without me at the time, even understanding the intricacies of what the, you know, subtext or even the text in a way really was about in that 92 film. The more I learned, the more frightening it became because the more I understood the character and the more I empathized with him, the more I really never wanted to meet him. But also the more it's like the fact that you can understand the monster so well. And then to say from my perspective, you know, as as a white man, I don't really understand any of Candyman's real heart and soul. And yet just that little touch, that little touch of that rage, knowing my own problems of rage and otherness and stuff from my perspective, it just real it just has always gotten to me. And then, you know, learning it more and more and more from perspectives of of various black voices that I've seen since the two films have uh, you know, collided now. This it gets me in the, like, the, my tragic core while it also gets me in my fear core. And I think that when I saw Naya Costa's version of this, I was just like crying and terrified at how perfectly I felt she encapsulated everything that got me about this character. And to do that, at my age at 34 and I felt like I was five again, just terrified of this thing and the way they did it. That for me is what really made me have like, I have to talk about this movie and I have to find the right people to talk to about it as well so that we can cover all the aspects that were, I'm definitely going to have some gaps in, in what I can talk about here. So for let's say like i don't know if anybody is like you know nipping at the bit here really really wants to jump in but uh you know open forum now what did this movie do to y'all so what this movie did for me was it made me feel seen um again because i feel like what's starting to happen with horror as time goes on there are more projects that are coming out that are allowing me to feel like a lot of the things that we go through as people of color are finally being put into a medium that works because a lot of the representation that has been done has just been mishandled. And that's why before it even came out, I was excited to see Nia DaCosta tied to it because there is so much promise with the original 1992 Candyman. There's so much there that could be explored. And I felt like by giving it to a filmmaker of color, they were going to fix some of those nuanced things that they went into like amazing detail in horror noir, kind of assessing like some of the problems that needed to be addressed. And they did. So see, like, so seeing the film, I felt like it 
exceeded my expectations. And and that doesn't always happen. So it was a moment for me. It didn't feel like, and that's what I like about certain horror films. And I'm sure you all can relate to this as well. It's like lifelong, like, like people who like love this genre so much. You can enjoy certain horror films at a surface level if you want to and say like, oh, this was just a lot of fun. The kills were like exceptional. I felt scared and then leave it there if that's if that's what you're there for. And there's no shame in that. But then for the people who want to dig a little bit deeper, there's that additional layer that you can get down into to see the social commentary and see exactly what the film is saying. And when that's done right, it's like a double pleasure. You feel it on multiple levels as that type of horror fan. And that's what I felt from Candyman. It was done correctly. And there were certain things that I've complained about um, mm-hmm. from this, uh, and to be specific, from this 2021 one. Like, I personally felt like it would have been kind of cool if some of the social commentary would have been more cognizant of the lives of non-Black, cisgendered, straight men. Um, because I felt like that was one of the issues with certain things like um, the Black Lives Matter movement that have been openly discussed, where when it's a Black, straight, cisgendered man, it's treated differently than when it's someone else. But I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because that was one thing of mine that I felt could have been tightened a little bit because I felt like this movie was necessary. It was essential. And this is a step in the right direction. And considering that it is candy man i understand like that why they just went in the direction they addressed the lore and i wouldn't be surprised if we did get a continuation in this in this new lore that they've created like they honored the 1992 one in a great way Uh they set up all of these characters and they started redefining the franchise in a way that could keep going on if they so wanted to Mm -hmm. so I feel like just, and I don't want to like blab because I know we're going to like drill into all the nuances, but that's my initial reaction to the film. I was, I was very impressed. I, I felt like it was a moment and for all the things they could have handled better, it was just a necessary film for the time. And I'm exhilarated that it came out. Mm-hmm. I want to comment on two things that you brought up just now. The first being enjoying horror on the surface level which I 100% agree with you on that because I am the kind of person that loves to enjoy movies on a surface level. And that's the whole reason why I don't like to call myself a movie critic because I love mediocre and even bad movies, but because there are things that I enjoy on the surface level that makes a movie fun and makes a movie super entertaining, even though it might not be reinventing the wheel or, you know, there's not some super important hidden message that I need to figure out. It's just, you know, straight up just stupid fun. And that's totally fine. But with this movie, with Candyman, I feel like it's it's really hard to enjoy this movie at a surface level only. I think that this is one of those movies where the surface level is the underlying message and there is no, you, you just can't ignore it. You know, it's, it, this is no Friday the 13th slasher. Like you can't just <laughs> enjoy the murder and just ignore the rest of it. It's, it, it's definitely not built like that. And my expectations for this movie, I mean, I was of course expecting it to be very enjoyable. I was expecting it to have good ratings. 
I was expecting my community to love it. Um, but I like, let's be real. I was very worried about critics because I had a, a feeling in the, in the back of my throat that this was going to be one of those movies where it, it's not a surface level kind of thing. And we all know how people get um, when they're presented those things um, and, you know, hit dog will holler and, you know, <laughs> it's so, yeah, you guys know what I'm, what I'm trying mm-hmm. you're picking up yeah, on what I'm yeah. trying to put down, yeah. but I, I was worried rightfully so because there was some nasty things out there, but that's okay because it's not for them. And if they don't want to digest it, then you don't have to. Um, but if you're coming into this movie, looking to digest something, oh man, will you digest something? Absolutely. And I think it was phenomenal at doing exactly what it needed to do. And the second thing that I wanted to comment on that you brought up was um, the things that it needed to address. Um, and, you know, it, we cannot in- ignore intersectionality at this point. It, 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 is, it should be the forefront of everything. And addressing these issues from only one perspective almost adds to our problem. I won't say it's not the problem, but it almost adds to our problem. It skews people's way of understanding differences and understanding, um, you know, conflict from, from different groups. And, and of course, for, for anything to progress ever, we, we need to understand. Yeah. Um, and when we get these very channeled stories being told it it could cause some damage so i definitely agree with you there and and i was a little upset um how brianna's brother the one who presented the the Candyman lore in the beginning of the movie um how he didn't really play much of a part aside from mm-hmm. bringing up the lore in in the beginning and then just being a supporting character i thought that was going to be something that was different i thought we were going to get a little bit more intersectionality but that being said i really rock with this new lore mm. and this might just be the hopeful fan in me but i have a really strong gut feeling that we could potentially see other candy men um, like we have this whole big picture now where Candyman is a symbol for, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to that later, but is a symbol <laughs> for generational trauma. And that's not specific to one entity. That's, you know, this, this entity is a whole plethora of stories that get combined into a, like a one single feeling. And those stories could be crazy, but you know, on the intersectionality train, we have no idea, you know, that same feeling could be gained from ridiculous, you know, options of, of, of trauma. And so I'm really hoping that this could kind of be like the spearhead into seeing other candy men stories throughout history. And of course, this is the first thing that I thought of when the movie ended. I was like, holy shit, we're going to get more, you know, if potentially like, let's just say we had one candy man per like generation or per Mm. one era, you know, that focuses Mm. on different things and you with time become comes different uh, struggles. Um, So if, you know, Candyman has existed since what the 1800s i think we've pinned it out at this point that's a whole lot of trauma and but not just from one avenue and that's what i was a little worried about and i'm sure you could agree with me in the sense that like you know the trauma is not just specifically spawning from the ghetto that is cabrini green mm-hmm. you know trauma is much broader than that and these things are not synonymous 
the ghetto and trauma. You could you could receive trauma as a Black American from <laughs> like a bajillion other avenues. And so inserting this lore and and broadening the spectrum of what makes a Candyman could potentially give us that intersectionality that we have been hoping for. And um, I'm just like, please, like, please, somebody at Monkey Paw, listen to this. Just, just like, <laughs> hear me out. Like, it would be a great idea and the fans would love it. And, but of course, that being said, um, we know how this non-existent surface level enjoyment would affect the fans. But like I said before, you don't have to digest. And uh, I hate this whole combativeness of and for for the listeners i'm putting up air quotes when i say this woke horror it's really annoying man it's super annoying and like we were just discussing at the at the beginning of our podcast there is so many different avenues of horror and just because you don't like socially conscious things doesn't mean that horror is not for you doesn't mean that it's plaguing the horror genre you could be like me and you could really appreciate these messages that are being transferred to you in the mode of horror but then also turn around and watch Friday the 13th part freaking whatever because the kills are cool it's not it's not a one way street no and on that as well like i've always been one of those people that even looks at the friday the 13th uh, films and is like there's there's stuff in there you know if you're looking for it you can yeah. find like the sad little boy who's just kind of defending what you know ever is going on there and you know i know that's just an example but i just want to bring it up because i knew that there's going to be listeners who are like yeah 100 that's what that is and just to show like so like i agree with you on the the woke horror uh ideas that it's really down to the voice that is interpreting the text basically mm-hmm. of like, what is their tone? What, what, what are they bringing about? How nuanced are they? And uh, you know, I think that finding value in a story isn't ever the issue. You know, the, the values that we have of course can differ beyond They are determined based on our backgrounds, our lived experiences, viewpoints in general but you know of course we're going to clash sometimes Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know this podcast alone when i ask people what is beauty to you or why is this movie beautiful to you sometimes we get into the social sometimes we go straight into visual aesthetics sometimes we go into sound and you know everybody seems to watch movies for different reasons i mean i've had phenomenon here and the way we analyzed it was quite interesting to me because it was both on it was on both really and uh, even the the gloopy uh, special effects and stuff like that, the appreciation and the level you can unpack pack that. There's a place for all of it, and as as you were saying, zero. I think there's a, you know, a strong case, especially for films like this one with Candyman. Like it is still made to be entertaining. There is still that that aspect of it that if you if you want to shut off brain and watch some really impressive shit that's been put on a movie for your entertainment. You can do it, but I do appreciate the boldness of this movie going, but I'm not going to let you forget the point because they're going to fucking say it. Period. Mm-hmm. So many movies that are just like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we'll, we'll imply and maybe have like that one scene that maybe people can like tune out if they just don't really notice it. I love that this mm-hmm. is just two hours of 
shit's fucked basically <laughs> and it's time to change and, and yeah. you know, really showing you what's going on in and has been going on since like the advent of america conversations that a lot of people don't want to have on that intersectionality i mean yes it, it's within you know different cultural spheres of course uh whether we're talking like gender spheres or our sexuality as well but also just from like white black other races as well i i i, I live in the netherlands where it is predominantly white uh the, very multiracial actually where i live i live in amsterdam but that's not part of the culture it just happens to be there are people of multiple races who live here it's really that strong like oh we live in, in this white idea of a culture i tell you the discomfort in the cinema while watching this movie. really it was either silent or not laughing at the appropriate jokes the the, the culturally like uh ingrained jokes and stuff if you get it you get it kind of mm -hmm. stuff more mm -hmm. laughing at the fact that this was a different culture that they were seeing and they just thought anytime that it was kind of like, Oh, you're not like me. They just kind of chuckled here. Not everybody, of course, but right. a lot of them, there's a guy who even like stood up and like got up to the projector to flip off the screen at the end of the film. Whatever, man. There's a lot of that shit here. Cause it's a very white supremacist country, whether people understand what that means. And I think that that term too, in this last span of two years, I guess because we're like at home talking to each other more, more freely, that term has gotten a different meaning than it has. You know, mm -hmm. our brains tend to go straight to like, you have to be Hitler to be a white supremacist mm -hmm. when it's really like, but it just means that whiteness is considered more valuable or normative. And if you perpetuate that, you are a white supremacist because you are trying to exemplify whiteness. Ah, that's this country in a nutshell, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I grew up in the South in a very racially diverse area. I, I grew up in uh, multiple, uh, you know, class areas as well. I've been in, in lower classes, middle classes, whatever. So it, it's ranged. I've also been some pretty white supremacist proper, like old, old school white supremacy uh, kind of areas too. When I went to private school and in high school. But because of that, like, yeah, some of the, like, just culturally, I was like, yeah, I actually understand. Uh, like, I've heard these discussions. I've had friends who who had these issues. And now I have more friends who who openly talk about things like this on the internet. And I don't know. It, it felt very weird to be in this situation because of the lack of intersectionality just in this country about any topic. Mm -hmm. I tell you, they did not like this movie at all. People were not. They weren't vibing. They, didn't <laughs> they were not vibing. That's really interesting. I never, th I mean, I mean, obviously just because, especially in late August when this movie came out, none of us were really like back, back in the theater yet. Yeah. So I didn't even think about how people would process this. And, you know, when you're in a theater, odds are, it's going to be a little, a little more diverse than your living room. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and um, one of the great things about watching movies in the theater is like that group, group, I don't want to call it group think, but like group feel, mm. I guess. Um, like, you know, you can, you can feel when that guy behind you like jumps a little bit or, right. you know, when something tragic happens and then the lady to your left goes, Oh, you know, <laughs> you can, you can pick up on those little things, but I, I didn't really 
really think about it. I watch Candyman at home with my screener, but I didn't really think about nice. how you can <laughs> pick up on these, especially because this is one of your, one of those, uh, you know, we're not going to let you forget kind of movies. Yeah. Um, and it is, I, I mean, from someone who lives in the horror community, I'm I'm pretty sure you would know what Candyman is about at this point. But hey, yeah. who knows? You might be just a, a couple who just wants to watch a horror movie and you walk into a theater because yeah. this new movie just came out. And people are talking about it. So you never know. I didn't think about that. That was That's it here. Of, uh, and we didn't have access. Like they didn't have like we don't have like things like HBO Max or any of the streaming mm-hmm. services that are kind of doing that stuff. So. Yeah, you had to go to the cinema. The the, the lockdown was a little different here. Uh, they they had like social distancing and stuff in the cinema to make it safe. But yeah, it was just mm-hmm. an interesting vibe in the room. How just like mm-hmm. there were definitely pockets of people who were like, uh, okay, they've never had a movie. Just kind of straight up, just talk to them about like uh-huh. you can't walk away from this, you know. And, you know, I, I guess they were too familiar with the 90s movie thinking this is going to be more of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that movie be, being such a product of the early 90s, it, it does have that element of you can close one eye just to see the part that is just kind of their surface level, as you were yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, I liked that they just dragged it to the surface level in this movie. It, it actually was it, it informs so much of the heart of this film that I think that's what makes it such a great film. I have to agree, especially for mixed audiences, because Hmm. when you have people who are black seeing this film, we understand our struggles because it's our lived experience. And in a sense, it's like, I think that's why sometimes when you see certain depictions of black horror, like, like as a person of color, like it definitely is tricky because some of the stuff that might be riveting or you know frightening or whatever to a non-black audience for a black audience it's like we know our struggles we know our trauma so it's like we're weary from that and we want to see it maybe co-opted or we want to see it subverted in a way that like acknowledges the trauma acknowledges the pain but shows the beauty of it and considering that you think about like how for this podcast, you're talking about the beauty of horror. I had to Google it because I couldn't remember. But when I started going through therapy, um, my therapist told me about a Japanese art style called, and I had to Google it. So if I'm saying it wrong, everyone listen, I apologize. Kintsuge, I think it's pronounced. And it's basically when you see a bowl that's been broken and you put it back together with gold or some like precious that, color. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what that is, it it shows the pain of like the beauty in your pain and your struggles and how it can be so much better when you embrace those things. And she was, you know, a great I mean, a great therapist. I went to her for several years and it always just stayed with me. And it feels like when the trauma of people of color are done correctly in the horror lens and beyond, to be honest. But, you know, we're talking about horror right now. That's what makes it a beautiful thing to witness. And for the the mixed audience, the people of color appreciate it because we're not just being seen as justified by our traumas or our pains or the things that, like, we are aware of. Like, we know about this stuff. We are seen as something beautiful through that experience. And then people watching can also understand how our trauma makes us something more. And we transcend that. And so I just wanted to, like, you know, give a kudos to that for sure. And even though, like, I was throwing, like, a little bit of 
you know, like I wish they would have, you know, definitely touched on people who weren't just straight black cisgendered men. I think I went into it also expecting them to kind of go up from that automatically because one of the marketing things that they used for the film was say his name. And we all know when I hear say blank name, I think say her name because like that's basically, you know, like, Bland. yeah, exactly. And um, Brianna Taylor. And there are so many other people who that's where that originates. So for them to use that in the marketing, for me, it felt like you're co-opting, co-opting something. And if that's not their intention, then, you know, I, I apologize. I, I haven't done, I don't, I haven't talked to any of the cost so or whoever did the, <laughs> I don't know, you know, but um, it just felt like it was a great opportunity since it was co-opted from something that was for people who weren't, you know, straight black cisgendered men. And this isn't me like throwing shade at them because they're a part of our community too. It's just all us wanting to be recognized and supporting one another in this effort. And I felt like that's why that opportunity could have been touched on just a little bit better. Like for, you know, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. And another thing about the film that I think really resonated with me, and I want to draw opinion on this because I saw some naysayers on the timeline kind of like throwing shade at, um, his name's Anthony, right? The main character. Um, Okay. They were throwing shade at the fact that his hand was withering and he didn't immediately seek medical attention. And I saw a lot of people upset about that. Well, duh. But the thing is like, and I want to hear what y'all got to say, because I felt like for me as someone who before when Obamacare happened, right. And this is going to sound mad random, but I'm, 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 if you stay with me, I, I swear I'm going somewhere with this. When Obamacare happened, I jumped on it and I was able to get health insurance and it basically changed my life because I related to Anthony's character having this blight or like this thing that's like going on with my body that I am deathly afraid to go and seek medical attention for because it is expensive, especially in America, to seek health care. Like I had one time, I felt so sick. I didn't want to go to the hospital. I went to the emergency room and the guy, look, I waited like over an hour to be seen. You know, I go and sit on the table and the guy says, say, ah, and he puts like a popsicle stick in my mouth and he says, okay. He asked me a few questions. I think you have a sinus infection. And I did. And he gave me some pills, $1,300. I did not catch the ambulance. I drove myself there and Everything in my experience at that time is someone who was an artist, because at that time, this is before, because outside of doing Brother Ghoulish, I'm actually an IT person. Like, I do IT. So, like, now I have, like, a career path where I have health insurance and I have these things. Back then, I was just an artist, and I didn't have that type of money. And I had aged out of being under my parents' insurance. So, I had to make some decisions about what deserves to be seen. Is it really that bad? Like, can I do something? So it's a different type of horror experience for me seeing Anthony go through this. I I saw it as someone who is weighing, do I really need to get this seen right now and risk paying like $2,000 when I'm an artist that's just trying to make it? Because I feel like it was heavily implied that he only got this opportunity because I think her name is Brianna. Like she Mm -hmm. was the one that actually gave him this opportunity, but he Mm -hmm. was still trying to use that to the best of his ability to become a name. And that's why he was just starting to pop at the beginning of all of this going on. 
he probably didn't have that type of insurance. He probably no, didn't. he doesn't have insurance at all. Like, yeah. you can't, you can't no, change your mind. This man does not have insurance. He has <laughs> no income of his own as well. There's yeah, he's a starving well. artist, like, <laughs> to a T. Yeah, he hasn't of made course. it in two years. They have the moments where uh, they just got into this apartment, and Brianna makes the slip of the tongue of, like, uh, you know, don't be speaking me out in in my new apartment. And mm. he's just like, yeah, I won't spook you out in your new apartment. It's fine. She's like, I'm sorry, our apartment. Because, you know, yeah. she's trying to include him in the relationship, mm-hmm. but she pays for everything. She has all the money. And so she probably has <laughs> a decent <healthcare laughs> yeah. stuff. But yeah, Anthony's just kind of struggling with, I mean, what do I do for me? You know, and mm-hmm. I think there's also that pride that, I mean, anybody, I suppose, would go through in that situation as well. It's like, you know, if you can't stand on your own two feet with that, right? You know, are you going to go to your significant other who pays for everything anyway and say, like, can you pay mm-hmm. my doctor bill? Yeah, that's a whole nother fish to fry Yeah, on top of everything. And honestly, this was like, I'm glad that you brought this up, Brian, because this was honestly like a, a talking point between my friends and I. We were joking about how people on Twitter, and I mean white people, um, <laughs> like could not come to grips with the fact that Anthony did not go to the emergency room. And we're like, if this <laughs> were us, like, okay, like I'm I'm not as old as, as Anthony is, but like if I were to go to my mom and tell her that I got stung by a bee and it's getting weird and I don't know what's going on in my hand, she would tell me to go take some Robitussin and lie down. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> like that is what she would say. She would say, "Quote: Go take some Robitussin and lie down." <laughs> that that is what she would tell me to do. And we have health insurance, but it's like if if I'm going to send you to the hospital, you have to need to go to the hospital. Uh-huh. So it's like, and also what you said, Ryan. Uh, 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 and and Chandler about um, Brianna being like the breadwinner in their relationship. That's that's two things. That's the the cultural disconnect of you needing to go to the doctor, and also I am a starving artist, and I don't want to hurt my pride any more than I already have by relying mm-hmm. on my girlfriend. Um, and so those two things together, like yeah, no shit, he didn't go to the doctor. Like, <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> I- I'd also say like if you. And if for anybody who's listening there is like, well, I can't really relate to that. I don't understand. You know, for, for what I will say when, when you were talking about it right there with you the whole way through, I had a completely different thought just because I, I'm, I've been in a different country for the last 15 years. So my relationship with healthcare has been a lot different. However, I grew up very poor. So the Robitussin thing is very, it hits home. <laughs> my, my mom's like, do you have an arm? Then fucking stop complaining. Like, yeah. <laughs> Does it move? Pick that shit up and walk up. Pick your back up. Yeah. It hurts when I do this. So don't do this. We we really were the rub some dirt in it kind of household. And even though, even when we got middle class, yeah, it was like, I don't spend money. We don't need to be. I would rather spend money on better food. That's kind of like the thing that Mm -hmm. we had. And, but I will say like my perspective as well, if I, if, if, especially so to, so to the white contingent, I'm going to speak to them a little bit about this. Like, okay, here's another thing that you can think about. This is really good, important details that you're bringing up too. So please, everybody keep in mind what, what Zero and Ryan are bringing here. But I also think it's a little foolish to just nitpick and bullshit like a supernatural movie like this when it's like, it's ghost shit. That's why. Like, can't you just yeah. try, like, did, 
how do you okay is he responding to it <laughs> no he's picking out a thing he sees like i don't think he's feeling much pain in that hand uh, like mm-hmm. the, yeah, the sting. No. so there's just there were so many things when i saw this complaint as well that i'm like you guys just want to complain about everything don't you yeah it's a there is a there is a reason it mm-hmm. might just be that you don't understand that reason yeah. or you just don't want to see that reason and b like is a supernatural horror film so like get over yourself Okay, because yeah. <laughs> like even without the really logical reasons that you've brought up, I just feel that there's that extra part of it. Like, just it's not worth complaining about. I agree. No, <laughs> so, but great, great analyses there. I, I, yeah, I, I love that you brought that up. That's fantastic. And I wanted to say just one last piece on it too, because mm-hmm. um, there's there's two sides of it too. Because like as people of color, I think there is a warranted like distrust in the medical health system because of the things that like Mm -hmm. black people have gone through historically and even today i I said historically like lightly because there is still this very incorrect presumption that like black people can take more pain we're more likely to be Mm. not believed when we go into a medical situation we're trying to explain what's going on with us we're more likely to be gaslit by medical professionals and no it's not this it's not that and to be over medicated and I mean, I feel like a lot of people reach for the, you know, obviously the Tuskegee experiments, um, which was, you know, very real. But even with that put aside, like, like as me just being a millennial who grew up seeing black people in my own family go through horror stories with the health system, we're not quick to go to doctors. We're not like there's there's so many levels to that experience for that. And I also took a note because like I thought about it, like with his hand withering. He's also in this place where obviously his career is bubbling. So it's like there's this one-to-one relationship. And it almost could be like a a nod to how in America we place so much value on the people who put themselves at disrepair um, and like, you know, glamorize their struggle because they're succeeding. How much pain can I like boast and like how much how bad can I treat myself just so I can be the boss and take no days off. Like we glamorize that type of culture in America Mm -hmm. so much. And that's not just a black people thing. That's just across the band. Mm -hmm. Like, like when the girls come into work saying like, Oh, I didn't sleep. And like, I stayed up all night and I've been vamping and I've been like, we glamorize that culture. And it's at the point of our disrepair. Yeah. Wake up. Let's get this bread. No sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Just grinding. It's not, really the ideal should not be the ideal but unfortunately yeah you're right our our country does glamorize it and that's that's just another reason uh-huh. as to why so you have all the reasons in the world so honestly at this point <laughs> if anyone has this opinion after watching this <laughs> just please go watch the movie again yes re, re- reevaluate the, the way you like or you know what stop think for a moment evaluate then maybe say that opinion and see if it sounds right yes you know that's another thing i think a lot of the times we're also seeing people like live tweet things and they're just like i'm gonna own it now i can't delete the tweet yeah oh yeah you can't edit but some people really just like yeah they, they just feel that way and i do feel that you know I'm a nuanced person i do like some nuance and and you know uh even even if i don't know certain things you can educate yourself or you can just acknowledge the fact, like, I'm sure there's more to it than this. This is what I feel right now. My opinion can change. 
that's yep. an important aspect that I think every human being could have and should have. And especially if we're going to be talking about films that work and function in a way like Candyman, because for as mainstream as it is, that is so intentional with this film is to make it digestible for just about every you know, taste bud out there so that we can get a taste of the real kind of, well, you were talking about wine earlier. So get a taste of the actual, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the wine that has been created here, you know? So one thing that you kind of broached a little bit, like there were, it, it's, it's one topic that was interesting to me, maybe more so as an academic, but there was a part of it that I was just flabbergasted was in this movie. I love that there's, there's a lot of different social things that are brought up here too. And one of them is like this, co- the, you know, the commodification of work and art in this film. And also the abuse of academic language as a means to gaslight and destroy somebody's self-worth. Mm-hmm. I would Chandler, love you are to so talk good. about this from I fucking hate ac- academics. Okay, this <laughs> is like it's <laughs> the reason I do what I do. I, I I can't stand the soapbox grandstanding of just taking something Foucault or or some other French man from sixty years ago and onward said to tear people down. Yep. And for me. As an academic, it was just uncomfortable for me to see these people struggle and like really have to be a walking textbook to do their jobs. And then as a white academic, to see how black artists were treated as if they were had no value unless they could do it just made my skin crawl. And it was a thing that, you know, I'll be honest here. I am one of those white people that as much as I have had uh, intersectionality and, and to the degree of like having grown up in certain areas or engaged with certain media at a, at a particular age that, you know, there's a, a mild understanding there. I'm still very ignorant and still learning and still growing. And just the things that just like seem like, nah, there's no fucking way that anybody would ever like have to deal with that beyond what I've had to go through. It just still like destroys me when I see this shit and how casually this is shown in this movie. It got us some satisfying kills, though. I will say that. <laughs> That's for damn sure. That is for damn so, sure. I just wanted to, like, did you pick up on these things as well? Then I, I no, absolutely. That that aspect of Candyman prob was that was my relation point personally. Okay. Because I had a, a very privileged upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a middle class family. And I, I obviously as well, I have light skin privilege, which I acknowledge every day. Um, so I never, you know, I, I didn't grow up in ghettos or, or, or slums or, or anything even close to that, to that capacity, but, um, never experienced, uh, just full on racism firsthand. But if there's one thing I know a good bit about is microaggressions. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I had to spend a lot of my teenage years unlearning what is not okay and, and what is okay. Um, and that really hurts, <laughs> uh, to be completely transparent, um, when you are, are an adult and you've lived your entire life accepting some things as compliments and as good things and 
things that are just okay. And this is the way that things are. And then having to learn that that's absolutely not okay. And that should not happen. And yes, you spent 17 years, you know, just letting this happen to you. And even though I I never, I was lucky enough to never experience just full on racism, it, it still holds a lot. And it can really crush your your character and your spirit if depending on when you realize these things. Um, so that was what that was what got me personally. That's what I could relate to as a middle-class person who unfortunately has had every single microaggression thrown at them. But, mm. you know, this, this shit is real. And once you realize that it's there and apparent always, it's, it's infuriating. And it's like, how do people live being patronized by this? And that, you know, can, can generate its own little pocket of trauma itself. Um, it, it doesn't always look like somebody being killed. It could look like somebody being withheld the opportunities that they are owed and that they deserve just because you think something of them and their people or whatever the hell it might be. Mm. And even though like um, the art director whose name was Finley and the, the, the dealer in the beginning of, of the art space, the, let's see, I have it here, Clive, um, those were like the most satisfying kills because oh. although they were not, you know, horrible people per se, they're not out here hurting and killing people. You can do a lot of damage with, with your words, with your attitude, your actions in, in your regular ass space, just by how you operate that space. And, um, it's heavy, man. But there's a reason why those kills were as satisfying as they were, because you know that what these people are doing is wrong and it's hurtful and it's not right. And I think those, ironically, not so ironically, but those are the most beautiful kills I have seen in a long time on a big screen. Like, and I'm, I'm yeah. talking like literally now, like they both it's were very beautifully gorgeous. executed. Yes. For both being like just shit bags in the art fucking <laughs> community it's like yeah your kill ought to be beautiful it ought to be <laughs> oh wow oh i'm yeah you know again like i've i've had the privilege of not having to deal with the microaggressions on a racial level but yeah i went to college prep school in high school with a bunch of waspy dudes who just yeah i know the shit you're talking about and yeah you do you either come to that breaking point where you're like i'm not taking that anymore yeah or you just deal with it and it just destroys you every it's like um it's really like if you were to find granite and take i don't know like an eraser and you just you know it's not the most efficient tool give enough time and enough little hits on that thing Mm -hmm. and you will erode it and you will do enough damage that it's not what it was when it started and I think that's what happens to to a lot of us. And if you add all of the extra layers of, especially somebody like Anthony, who's not only like not a part of that world, because like beyond like it's a very white world that he's kind of stepping into that Brianna's kind of dragged him into. It's an upper class world that he's not really a part of either. And then especially knowing that his hair just comes back from Cabrini Green, he's never really been a part of that world. Yeah. And he's just... Uh, I, 
I will, if if it, if it wasn't for that shitty audience, I probably would have applauded the moment. He was like, bitch. Left <laughs> it was room. so good. It was <laughs> yes. so good. So cathartic. Es- especially with the with Finley being like dragged across the window. Mm-hmm. Like very and that like it took a second too to get her across like the whole window. I almost wanted it to last longer. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> oh, oh Lord. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you had uh, anything to chime in on there uh, as well, Ryan. Um, yeah, I, I feel like as because I have dealt with racism like multiple times, even as young as like being like four or five growing up in predominantly uh, white spaces because my father, he um, he served in the Air Force. And so I was actually born in the Philippines and then like I globetrotted a lot. That's so cool. I learned something about you today. I have like a bunch of random shit that I don't ever like like say. But I'm the most random. I'm the most random person. But when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I was like maybe four or five, that was the first time I encountered racism. And the way that my parents handled it was so good that it didn't cause like from what I know. I mean, my therapist may say otherwise. I don't know. It didn't cause like any <laughs> significant trauma because. Okay they put it into perspective for me. Like the day we were moving into where we were at, um, the person next to us had a Confederate flag on the porch. And I was like a very social kid and I'm a very social adult. So that has like remained. So I was speaking to them, you know, and they were just me mugging me and they were very nasty. And I knew that they were being nasty to me, but I couldn't process why. Because everywhere that I had been, going through this experience with, for the most part, I was always surrounded by white kids. There were even be times I was like the only black kid in class or like in, in the circles I was in. It wasn't, I didn't, it's stupid to say, but I didn't think about me being very different. I didn't think about it, but we had that experience all the time we were living there, how they would treat us and how they would be to us. And my parents just made it seem like there was something wrong with them. And I mean, well, there was. So it's not like they were lying. But I had like this sense of community with my family. And it helped me in ways that have, I think, played into where I am now as an adult, even with a lot of the stuff we were watching. Even though like growing up, I was like tired of black and shit, to be honest. Like, (laughs) I I can't negate that like seeing myself on screen as a black person made an impact. Seeing my father who like he embraced Egyptian culture cuz he loves like he um when he went to college, well he's a lawyer just to put into perspective, but for his undergrad he studied Africana. And so he knows his shit. And so like our house had like Egyptian stuff every and and elephants and wicker. That is a that is I'm zero. You probably feel all of that right now. But elephants and wicker, like literally everywhere. But anyway, I'm sorry, but like so many elephants. My mom too. My mom is on that way. I don't know why. Even when like we moved to Maryland, like my aunts and uncles who I had never met, wickers and elephants. And I'm like is there like a memo i'm sorry but anyway like so i felt like the experience that i went through especially like just based on the person i am it got me into a space that ironically as an adult was predominantly white and i was i I was hit with so much racism on every end and i still am even at the new job that i'm at right now and i want to be careful how i say it in case i ever hear it 
you know, I went to HR my first week being here because I, I faced racism in my first week being at this job. Oi, I'm sorry. And I was gaslit like immediately. So like racism is something that's very intrinsic to my experience. And it almost feels like my frustration comes from, you know, you have to work twice as hard to get to, you know, where people who aren't of color have to be in the first place. And then all that ticket buys you is into a space where people tell you you don't belong or they try to make you feel like you don't belong. Despite how hard you work to get there, despite you being experienced, it's the extra thing you have to fucking deal with. Uh. And so it's always been weird. It's like, I feel like that's why it's hard for me when it comes to certain things that I like encounter, like media wise. It's hard for me to see, you know, just at the surface level. And like y'all said, with Candyman, it's impossible, right? Because like, it's right there. It's like in your face. And Anthony, I think, felt a lot of that frustration about those microaggressions because a lot of what they're saying, like you said, Zero, is like, how much can you do for us versus like, you know, that's all that matters. Like, there's such a dehumanization in that. Mm -hmm. All that your value is coming from right now is what you can do for me, like as an employee or as an artist, whatever the case may be. Like, that's not that's not even realistic. And you have him because his name was Clive, you said, right? The the Clive, yes. Do y'all think I I'm just curious. Do y'all think yeah. that was like, you know, oh, yeah. like self-referential because Clive kind of is like I don't know. I want to hear what y'all got to say. I feel like y'all are there with me. <laughs> oh, 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 so you're, you're going to set us up to knock it down. No, I'll start if you want. I just don't like to talk too much. I've been feeling guilty. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, 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 that's why I'm including you as well. I would love to hear what you're going to say first because I, I, okay. I really have thoughts on Clive. <laughs> I kind of feel like with certain um, people who, and the first thing that comes to mind, I don't know if you guys saw Scare Me. Um, by I Josh. loved it. it was I awesome. love that th- one of the best movies ever. And shout out Amazing. to Sheree from Nightmare on Fierce because she's the one that suggested it to me. But um, it was great. I think it's great when filmmakers, especially like white men, are aware of like <laughs> the role that they play in things Yo, and, yeah. and aware of like <laughs> you know the things that they could be like doing better, and they use that as like the foundation for the thing that they're making, mm-hmm. and it's like this self-referential, like introspective look at how ridiculous sometimes like the white filmmaker can be when they're doing certain things, like not you know the best way possible. I feel mm-hmm. like they did that in Candyman by make by making his name Clive a little bit. But I don't know because I don't know Clive. I haven't met him. And if he, if you ever hear this, I love you and I love your work. But, <laughs> but I, I wonder if it was in that vein, like acknowledging in a self-referential way, like by me doing or being involved with this Candyman project that is about a bunch of people of color, I am being kind of like this art exhibitor, kind of moderating how the story is supposed to play out and how we can monetize this thing. And I don't know. I'm feeling that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But no, that's I what I think. I wonder. And if not, love you, Clive. Love you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you slay me so. <laughs> it is his source material. I don't. How much? How, how yeah. was he with the film? Uh, no idea. Don't, I don't I'm know. Sure. Probably not at all. He's listening to this. Like, screw this guy. I wasn't even involved with this project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think though you're onto something there. At least, like, so it. it if not necessarily the racial aspect of it, because I don't know if he was much involved with the film Candyman. There's still that aspect of like, yeah, 
you take the original story and you're still showing like the downtrodden in your own culture and you're using it to commodify for like you're selling it in books and all these anthologies. And I, I think that, you know, yeah, we, we can definitely point that little, little, little finger and wink a little bit like Clive, you know, you did though, you know, uh-huh. you, you, know. You, you did start this <laughs> and you did gain <laughs> and you've continued to gain. Uh, and it's you have been commemorated. <laughs> <laughs> what a woman! Yo, I actually i i spoke to um to Josh Rubin on Clubhouse one time, and he like he like popped into the room, and I was like, oh shit, it's Josh Rubin! I just watched Scare Me, and I absolutely love that shit. And of course, he goes on to like talk about the film, and like. Uh, I, I was speaking with him and I was very careful about the words that I use to describe his character just because like I, you know, you never know who's listening and yep. you know, the director mm. himself is listening. And um, but he straight up said it. He was like, yeah, you know, playing an incel. And I was like, oh, well, if you just said it, I mean, then it's, I guess it's I, did, I didn't want to say that word. Like, I feel like that's why I was meandering. But I was like, let me chill. <laughs> like, I'm so <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I swear. I wasn't going to say it. But since he said it, I was like, all right. So he is an incel. Okay, got it. <laughs> that's excellent. Oh, that's fun. No, but so was Clive because he had like a, I feel like he's. <laughs> I'm, well, now I'm just being mean. Actually, I'm just going to clip that last thought. <laughs> the thing for me was the Clive thing. I think what they really did with it, that made me kind of like chuckle a lot. That's when I kind of got that kind of like, you know, you're you're getting to some scream vibes here for me with your little referential shit. Was just how like I'm gonna just 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 neg this girl and just have weird sex and just like everything sex 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 and it's weird and it's dubious and I'm like yeah you know, you are Clive aren't you yeah that's, yeah. that's Clive's shit it's like yeah how, how can I express this dark sexuality within and 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 at what cost of humanity is it but like hey and you. Fuck it, I'm into that shit. I really am. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, you know what? I'm happy they had this like weird, almost sex scene, and it ended up being the most like vile <laughs> death scene. I think we did in the movie. <laughs> so, a lot of penetration in this one. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about in the art gallery, right? Yeah. yeah. Did you like that she was wearing um, a Joy Division uh, shirt? Oh, by the way, I I live the sound I cackled when she made the god awful when he's like yeah we know you love joy division i was just like yes the fucking joy division shirts you see from just like 20 year old white girls here in the netherlands who have never like not it's not i don't mean like oh you've never listened to music like you you i don't know it's a thing it's such a like it's a vibe that is just so notable to me i know those girls Mm-hmm. Talk like I mean, I, they talk like wasn't Jerica was her name. They talk like her. They the whole interactions between them as well. Oh, that was I think that was one of the most like intricately written parts of the script for me. Oh, for absolutely. Sure. I was like, yeah, I know both of those guys, exactly. like the Clive and and his little girlfriend. I I know like like at least two two of them, like. <laughs> copies i've seen this person before <laughs> uh, so uh, on 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 the beauty of this so i would love you know we, we've already kind of opened that little door here now we, we've we've mentioned it before a little bit but now we've actually started to get a little in the nitty-gritty of it let's 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 mm-hmm. unpack this scene a little bit 
because Zero, you were also talking about just how beautifully made some of these deaths were. And I I got the feeling you were talking about this one earlier when you were talking about like really Yeah, this one and then the art director in yes. um in her apartment. Yes. And with this one in particular, what made it so beautiful for you then? What really struck you from this scene? I think it was the timing. Mm. I, it was it was pretty long, you know? <laughs> and um <laughs> I think it was, I mean, it was dark, yeah, but it was not that dark. Like, you could see everything. And then, of course, it. I I almost felt upon, like, my first watch that it it was longer than it was supposed to be. Like, like look at this. Uh-huh. Look at the beginning of what is happening right now. And I just felt this, like, very strange not strange very appropriate poll as to like pay attention and like it was very i don't want to say planned out but like whoever it was that was doing the killing it, it was like um personal it was personal it was intentional almost as if they were enjoying it and they want you to see you know even if it lasts a couple extra seconds longer than average kills on screen that it was it was morbid and and enjoyable for for a very good reason and they they definitely did a great job in making you feel some type of way about both of these characters before Mm -hmm. they kick the bucket so it did make it a little bit easier but i don't know something about the length of that one and um the penetration as well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't lie. But I think as far as like beauty goes, I did think that Finley's death was a little bit more, I don't want to say more artistic because I think all of this is pretty subjective, uh-huh. but Finley's death just felt like a really long time coming. And at this point, you know, people have died before in the movie. So we know that we're at this point where people are dying which we all love. And then also that at that that point Anthony is like like he finally like it clicks his connection with Candyman because he has that really epic moment in the mirror in her apartment. That's when it's like this is happening to me. This is a me issue right now. And so as the viewer you're like I see this coming. Like I it's it's about to go down. She's about to go. But it wasn't as morbid as the first time with Clive and, and the little girlfriend. Because you get that outside wide shot from the outside of the apartment uh, onto the window. And that just felt a little more... I'm not Symbolic is not the word I'm looking for. I don't, I don't think I know the word that I'm looking for. But um, kind of the journey and not the destination... Because mm. you know that it's going to happen, I want to say, like, 10 minutes before. That whole apartment scene is super tense, and you could almost taste it coming. And then it does. And instead of, like, a, ah, oh, oh, my God, uh, jump, you get a, ooh, there it is, jump. And mm. something about the outside window really did it for me. It was... It was satisfying, but not in the general way, which is somebody just got stabbed a bunch of times and now they're bleeding out on the floor. It was 
like flashy, showy, but also I really wanted to do this and you really had this coming for you. I don't know. It was very unique. It's something about like, I guess I had never really seen that intricate of a kill from that far away also. Um, and yeah, still yeah. getting that, that same like, Oh shit, <laughs> she just kicked the bucket, but we're from like, I don't know, like 200 feet away, wherever the camera is very, very far away. It was very unique to me. And I think, uh, I, I don't know. Would you guys consider this a slasher? Because I'm not really sure. I would, at this point. I would personally. Yeah. I'd say this one more so than the 92 movie. You think so? Mm-hmm. Dude, yeah. Because like, I think with the 92 film, they, they, they focus so much on the romance. And yeah. that like what you you both already kind of mentioned and the film does as well. You know, they have the whole, like, it's the whole damn swarm. How we have mm-hmm. this, this, this multiple layer and level of the different candy men mm-hmm. and their different motivations and traumas that have created them. Whereas in the 92 version, it's just one guy that he's just, you know, a ghost and mm-hmm. then the, the kind of like Dracula love story kind of kicks in in the middle of people dying, yeah. but it's more of like the psychological thriller. Like is Helen crazy or is Candyman actually doing the shit? Mm-hmm. And this movie's just like, mm. <laughs> like, nah, he's killing. Sherman yeah. is is on a rampage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sherman is on the ramp. Sherman is in the building. <laughs> I can't with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really though, I like if I had that feature on my phone where I could like have a moving wallpaper, it would probably oh. be thinly like Damn. being dragged across. If I had that feature on my phone at Google, I think if people saw that on your phone, they'd be like, I oh. don't. You know what? I'll, I'll sec. I'm gonna wait. <laughs> yeah, maybe I won't buy the chicken drink. <laughs> this wasn't that important. I don't need to confront her with that. That's fine. No, it, no, it wasn't. I will say, I, well, okay. I, I want to make one comment on that, and then I also want to go to you, Ryan, about uh, you know, the same topic. Um, when you were talking about it with Finley's death, the the fact that we could see all the windows around her and so far away and how it got to you. Well, the reason it got to me was also because we have that catharsis already of like this character needed it. She needed like to go and to experience mm-hmm. some, honestly, some struggle in her life of any kind. And she's got like the worst one. So it's, it's a comeuppance, but the, I love the comeuppance of you think you're so important and everybody's just living their lives and nobody knows and nobody cares. And you are now just another headline. I love that. I, Oh, that's beautiful. Damn Chandler. You good, man. That. Yep. Damn. That part. I'm a cynical guy, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, eat it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like that's the vibe I got from it. Why they pull out from that as well? It's like, well, just, just like a whisper, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Might as well have just been sipping tea that night. Might as well. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, Ryan, um, I mean, I, you, it could either be the, either these kills or not. But like, uh, what what was a particular moment in the film that really struck you that you found like really beautiful? The massacre at the end of the cops. Because I felt like that was a multi-level one. And I want to just say, it just on on the kills of this movie, generally speaking, it's a flex. And it's a flex I'm here for. (laughs) Because, like, a lot of the kills that I think 
have been done when you think about like the early 2000s and the 90s, which was like my catalyst in the heart. A lot of it is really close up and it makes sense. Like the kills happening here. So we're just going to focus right here. Um, but now we've gone to such a point where you can kind of like scale back so far and see Finley being killed from, like you said, I don't know how far away it was, but it was pretty damn far away. Mm-hmm. Like at least 20, like 200 feet away. Even like the girls being killed in the bathroom, they could have mm-hmm. like done the the camera actually like going to each of them and everything. But by reeling it back and limiting it to what you can see under the stalls and then under through a vanity, like a pocket vanity, I thought it was just, it was just so beautiful. But the cop on takes the cake for that because I feel like, there's nothing more absolute than like a cop who is dirty or whatever the case may be, because they already have like that amount of power. They already, they control everything. And even if it's not intentional, because I don't know that I would believe someone who would tell me the details of what happened with Candyman either, just to be fair, but justice is justice. And what ends up happening so many times is there is that breach. And, you know, the people who come out on the other end of that, whether they're of color or not, it's like, you know, you can't fight a bunch of like a a huge gang of police officers with pistols who are telling you what the truth is and, you know, putting you under the rest and putting you under these situations. So for Candyman to come and slay them, it felt like the spirit of the film. It felt like this is a proper climax and it looked really great. And of course, didn't it? Like it was like the lights were toned down. You could see like the, the colors of the the lights from the police cars. And then mm-hmm. we get Tony Todd, which <laughs> I was, I, I'm going to calm down because otherwise I will fangirl all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Understand that scene to me is just like, like, like you used to say, zero chef's kiss. Like, chef's kiss. Perfect. Yeah. Like, that's you yeah. know what I really want to say though, and not to like kill your, your fangirl <laughs> moment but like, why they have to do the de aging thing? <laughs> why I, like, did they? <laughs> I I I think he like you know he he's a little bit of an old man now, but he still looked good for an old man. You he know does. what I'm saying? And he's like still obviously Tony Todd, but like I get it. Like he's a ghost. He's like not an actual aging human being. So. <laughs> You want him to look the same way. But then me, I'm just like, oh, look, it's CGI Tony Todd. Like, why do they have to do this with my mans? But, like, I get it. Like, they wanted to keep the continuity, like, sure. But they like, play, they play earlier, it, old boy. Like, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> so, whatever. That kind of bothered me a, a, a tiny bit. But honestly, like, it was just like a thought I had. I'm like, I'm like waving my arms viewers right now. Like, please don't attack me. Like it was just a thought. It didn't do anything like on my impression on the film. But another thing that I, that I took away from, from uh Candyman in terms of beauty is like the, um, the sound of bees tapping on the inside of a uh, mirror. Like the, mm-hmm. the you know, they're on the inside because Anthony's always looking at the mirror and then Candyman is on the inside of the mirror looking mm-hmm. back at him where all the bees are and the bees are like trying to get at him and just that tapping like any of that little tapping and sometimes I won't even lie like my sink in my bathroom like leaks a little bit mm-hmm. and so sometimes at night when it's very very quiet and I'll hear like the drips and then I think of the bees behind the mirror <laughs> that's frightening but I I like my favorite or the first thing that I always pick apart when I review horror films 
um, is the sound design. And mm-hmm. well, I will sound design aside, the score was beautiful. I thought the score was, was really, really awesome. I was really tempted to buy that waxwork vinyl record. Of, I, that I, didn't. Mm. <sighs> I stopped myself because, you know, my pockets run a little thin, but I really mm-hmm. wanted to, I promise you, I really wanted to. <laughs> um, the, the soundtrack was phenomenal, but those little drops that, that, you know, are placed around the film just enough for you to recognize that is what stuck with me. So whoever's idea that was, and it's not even the hook, it's the bees. Mm-hmm. It's the bees. Mm-hmm. That stuck you, with me. You know, as you were talking about that, I came to a realization about myself. <laughs> I have That's okay. deep. Well, no, because, okay, here's the thing. I already mentioned that Candyman, for me, it's always been like the most frightening thing. And I'm starting to understand a little bit better why. And I don't know why I never really put the two together until like, I mean, maybe I have, but you know, it's just like when you say it out loud, it becomes more real. Right. I have a terrible, terrible phobia of wasps and it used to be bees as well, but I've gotten to learn them as our gentle little fuzzy friends as they are. And right. the, the buzzing of them makes them sound so aggressive to me and I really can't mm-hmm. stand it. And I told you, I knew Candyman before I knew the movie Candyman. So the movie Candyman was the most triggering goddamn movie I had probably ever seen because it was, oh my God, Candyman and that that gnarly hook with all the blood and stuff on it. And he had beads coming out of his chest. That's two strikes. This movie just cranked all of that up with oddly enough like it's more grotesque and disgusting and everything in the the original 92 they they go for more for the body horror in that one and this one just like it's everything i am afraid of with wasps and bees you know when they're just like Mm -hmm. in the house and you didn't know they were there and then you just hear that past your (laughs) and you're like where did you come from yes that's what i can't deal with and then that ding, ding, ding. I have had so many queen wasps try to get into our apartments over the years in the summer that you just, you literally hear them ding, ding, ding against mm-hmm. the window because they want in. And just this aggression of I want in, that com- that is so indicative of Candyman's personality in this film yeah. that it just freaked me out the whole way through. Mm-hmm. My heart was pounding. I was breathing heavily throughout the whole movie. And I didn't really like, like kind of make that connection until you're really talking about that. Ding, ding. I'm like, that does freak me out. That sound. Uh, yeah. Props to the, the sound design of this movie. It is very effective. That's dope. That really is like the embodiment of, of Candyman low key, especially well with this one specifically, it's the, yeah. All right, so like the way Candyman dies is if you just stop talking about the lore, right? Like if you don't talk about the urban legend, then he has no power against you. But at the moment his name comes up again, that's him as as the bees, I guess, like you were just saying, that's totally correct. It's like a let me in. The name has been brought up and now it's that that tapping sound because you you've woken it up and now it's here, it's trying to get in. Oh man. Mm. Mm-mm. It's brilliant. It is. And it's a subtle nuance that's so freaking scary. And there were no missed opportunities with it. Because even with the like pocket vanity, you hear the yep. tapping before the bee comes out of the reflection and comes into our world. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I mean, exceptional. Damn. 
I want to talk yeah. about that real quick because like, okay, so my most beautiful scene was the bathroom scene because of an observation I made my second time watching the movie. And like, I never fucking noticed. <laughs> and also I want to make a, like a, a, and there will be like a slight tangent in there because I want to tackle something that the two of you also brought up in this last kind of round of things. Cause it goes with like multiple of the scenes that we were talking about, but with this particular one, the moment that, so you, you have that vantage point from underneath the stall, you have the vanity mirror. When I first saw it, I thought it was like a makeup kit. So I only saw the mirror on the top where we can actually see Sherman kind of floating around and stuff. I didn't notice the mirror on the actual bottom part until the second time I saw it. And when that B taps into that mirror and it's in our world the bee and then it starts walking on the bottom part of the mirror and it flies away and there is one that's left underneath on the other side it like it splits itself within reality so there's the reality in the mirror world where this bee exists and now the bee's also in our world and then it crawls up to the top of it in the mirror thing it blew my damn mind. I'm just yeah, like, that's nuts. A, that's a, nuts. Just this one little effect just said so much about reality in this film mm-hmm. and what it means to exist, basically. And I think that's why this movie, I think, gets to me on such a level. It's a lot about existence, but I also feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because, you know, I am an outsider talking about this specific thing, but it from the voices that I've heard talk about this film and other films of this nature, like isn't that kind of the heart of it is just talking about to, to be black BIPOC person of color to exist is kind of the thing, right? The, the, a bit of the horror in itself. And I think this movie just like grabs you by the throat with that. And then on, you know, from from my outsider perspective, I suppose, existence in general, I find a very strong topic for horror in general. But I don't know, that, that, that hit me more in that kind of racial narrative that they were bringing up as well. Just existence in this kind of bifurcation of different types of existence and then the, the different ways that you you exist within the world. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm reading way too deep. No, you but. are like totally on the spot. um have you heard of of like double consciousness the veil in terms of like black history not so much okay so it's it's this phenomenon uh of reading i i read in college um w.e.b du bois and he wrote about um double consciousness in this this um it's this thing called the veil so imagine like I am a black woman and there's this veil in front of me and I I know myself and I know my existence as a black woman and then there's a veil and then I'm also seeing how the rest of the world views me as a black woman or a black mm-hmm. man or a gay man or a, whatever the fuck kind of minority. There's yeah. That's that double consciousness. So there's me and how I see things, and then there's me and how everyone else sees me. And when you're in that position, when you're behind the veil, you have to know both. And right. it's it's almost important for survival to know both Ooh. because you need mm-hmm. to Honey. understand how to Honey. navigate both sides of the veil. Um, it is like code switching. I mean, you could make it right. as simple as code switching. Like when you're in the presence mm-hmm. of an elderly lady, that's ma'am. 
yes, ma'am. Right. You don't just yes, it's yes, ma'am, because mm-hmm. you know that's how you operate other things on the other side of the veil. And damn, Chandler, I, I didn't even think about well, first of all, I have to go back and I have to watch that scene because I, I need to see that with my own eyes. The bee. Yeah, the fucking bee coming, just shaking our worlds up. But I, I think that maybe could be intentional. It, it, it could be some sort of nod to the veil, uh, a mm. nod to double consciousness because it's something that literally all black folks – all marginalized people, maybe not all marginalized people, but right. most marginalized people mm-hmm. have to go through life understanding or else you're just going to find yourself in trouble. Yeah. This That's just straight yeah. up. I think the reason why it resonated with me, I guess, is because, you know, I do come at it from a queer perspective for mm-hmm. myself since, you know, I wouldn't call myself cis. So, uh, and that's something I've kind of explored over the last year. I guess those things are kind of really hitting me. Like I've, I got I got the watery eyes right now. You you really hit some shit with that. Uh, what you're talking about there. Now that you mentioned it. I I do recall coming. I I, I know Dubois for sure. I I, yeah. I I know his work. But the double consciousness. I it was my bachelor that we've touched upon it. But like mm-hmm. I, I I went I drifted my more bachelor's into, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I drifted more into the philosophy realm as as I went on and on. So like terminology and stuff for me. But yeah, uh, the more you, you touched upon that, uh, I, I can understand it. Where, where you're getting at with that, and yeah, could be totally be intentional for us. Like, because this movie, like, I feel that some of the critique I saw of this film, which <laughs> again predominantly white people um yeah. is that there like is as if it's preachy and not really like doing more than just saying like hey 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 listen which really how is that a bad thing for one thing but yeah. for, for another thing to claim that there isn't more intricacy in it is like how can you have any representation of academia in this film and not expect that the imagery and the storytelling are made with academic theory in mind. This is Beautiful. practical application of theory is what it is, which is why it's so confrontational. Mm-hmm. That's facts. <laughs> I feel like to that effect, like, cause I've seen a lot of the negative critique as well. I, I've seen it. I feel like people just have to remember Candyman as an IP has always said something. Whether it was the short story that was talking about class or whether it was the first film in 1992 that was talking about race in America, because those elements were there as well. It's always said something because some of the negative things that people said about it, it almost seemed as if they were trying to suggest that, okay, well, what was going on before was like a horror film. And this is, like you said, like very preachy, preachy. But I feel like Candyman has always had something to say. Uh And it's still... I think like a great horror film, despite the fact that there is something to say. And you blew my mind with the double consciousness thing. Cause I didn't even think about that. That's freaking brilliant. And yeah, like you're going to make me go back and rewatch that scene too, because the way that I process it, I think I misremembered it. Did the bee fly into our world or did the, the bee go back into the reflection? I can't remember now. It doesn't, it splits. So the, so there's one that remains. Flies, yeah. The bee either. I can't, recall if it flies in through the window or if it just yeah. exists because you know Candyman appears 
but there's a moment where one of the girls rounds the corner and when she gets killed off screen and that's when you hear the and it's, you see it kind of just flying around the yeah. room so to add to the chaos they just have this bee <laughs> flying around in the room <laughs> which I'm like there's nothing nothing more chaotic than a bee in a bathroom amen um, <laughs> and then when that uh, pocket thing lands the bee initially tries to get into the mirror world it's trying to escape reality to go to the candy man so it's a real bee that's like ding, 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 ding. and then it just walks around on the mirror and when it leaves candy man just made his own bee out of it so it just oh, you see it upside down on the mirror. Well, the other bee flew away. It's still in reality. Uh-huh. And then right. it just kind of crawls up the Ooh. other side of the mirror. And then when he starts floating, it flies to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to have to go back and receive that scene. Cause I had Same. A, yeah. Like, and I love that scene as it is, but damn, that makes me look even more. <laughs> Can I blow your mind just one more time? Yeah, please Absolutely. do. Yeah. I love that it's also a black girl who's looking at that mirror when it's happening yeah. and then it's the whole damn swarm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, if you're talking about collective trauma and generational yep. trauma as well, it's like, well, she's been bullied by these girls and yeah. she's getting some catharsis right now, but she's also traumatized by the situation. That's right. the thing I wanted to bring up extra to this is what the two of you have kind of brought up is what makes these kills so special. I'd say apart yeah. from the first one, the first one is a traditional kind of slasher oh shit, the killer's here doing some shit kind of kill. That's why it takes so long. And you're like, Mm -hmm. hey, if you're white in the audience, I know you're uncomfortable right now. (laughs) 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 That part was. But for the rest of them, uh, and also Finley, it's funny, like the two like real antagonists, if you will, from from the the, the more like racist perspective, they just kind of get killed more traditionally in that way. Nobody cares. Nobody's there to witness it. They're not important. But for everybody else, you have somebody from their perspective watching in the distance somebody getting killed. Like you said with the cops, for instance, it's all about Brianna, which was very important. I think very impactful as well that we could have made it about the cops getting killed, but who cares? It's about Brianna experiencing this release (laughs) and freedom. (laughs) But also the terror of what the fuck is going on. Right. <laughs> and the same with this girl when she's seeing all these bullies, it's like, well, I mean, I just wanted them to leave me alone, but thanks, Candyman. I don't, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's like this extreme as well. I think there's also a message here saying of like, to what extremes do you have to, you know, get your justice as well? Um, mm. which is it nuanced? I don't really know. I don't I don't know if that's a nuanced argument in this film or if that's just where entertainment is kind of being pumped into it. But uh that's how I felt about it. I think it. a little bit of both, honestly. I, I think it I think it's like not an accident uh-huh. that Candyman's motives are still a little bit unknown at the end of this film. Yeah. Cause some people are like And this is where a lot of confusion comes up on Twitter. And this is, I know people like get frustrated with the confusion and then they're like, it doesn't make any sense. Whatever. But one is like, I thought Candyman didn't kill white people or uh, only killed white people, which we already know that is not the case. Never been established. And and then in uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, I feel like the, the reason for the killings kind of goes through this like purposeful skew with um 
Coleman Domingo's character, uh, Mr. Burke, Billy Burke, mm-hmm. like the the resurrection of Candyman, because everything before that, and y'all can definitely correct me or like jump in because I don't know if anyone knows like the the hardcore answer, but I I always viewed Candyman's wrath as like an a leftover rage from generational trauma that will be taken out on literally anyone who defies that that energy i guess uh-huh. so it, you don't necessarily have to it, like candyman is not an avenger he is not a vigilante that just goes around killing the bad guys because they have done something bad it's it's all that leftover trauma that will go after anyone who almost negates that trauma's existence so, for example, the little kids in the bathroom um, who ended up being um, Burke's, like, sister and, like, cousin or something. This is why he has he, – why he wants to bring Candyman back. So they didn't believe in him, right? So they go to the bathroom and they say Candyman five times in the mirror. And uh, they're, you know, non-believing and testing of this entity um, – Sorry, my cat. Um, <laughs> will in turn, you know, grants permission to have that that wrath used against you, and then Burke's character kind of changes it into, and he does say this one line. I'm not exactly sure what the line was at this point, but he says, you know, it Candyman is kind of whatever you make it, you know, yeah. and so instead of harnessing this as generational trauma energy to be used against anyone who will negate that and who will try to forget that it's just vengeance at this point, because the reason why he was bringing it back up is because he still, I mean, obviously was feeling some type of way about his family getting killed and and negating that. And so him, I guess, resurfacing Candyman was in a, a realm of vengeance and not just, you know, Anyone who defies me is getting this axe. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh huh. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. And oh, that's so good. The thing about it is, when I went on to um, Hard Queers to talk about Candyman, Trace mm-hmm. posed a question that I've meditated on quite a bit. And it sounds like Zero, you're on the same vein of thinking as him. And I think it's like important for us to hover there for a second, which is the rage aspect of what ends up becoming. Candyman and does that at a certain point like split does the rage become its own entity and I think the answer is probably yeah I mean I only say probably because like it seems like the cards are definitely there like the rage is so pronounced that that is what we understand to be Candyman and it's not necessarily the person like Sherman that name fucks me up I'm sorry like Sherman (laughs) or Daniel or whatever like it started off Sherman or Daniel or whoever else but then the rage is so pronounced that it it actually becomes like its own entity. And that's why, like, when you think about this film, it's really interesting how you see different people react to this entity that's like a gun. Because if you put, like, a gun inside one person's hand, they may not want to use it. They may just put it aside and keep it in their home uh, to protect themselves. But then if you put guns into the wrong hands, and this is why, like, gun reform and gun control is a big issue... You don't know what could really happen. It. I feel like I look at 
because I'm I'm not just a fan of horror. I'm also a fan of like fantasy, and this is going to seem random, but I think of magic that way. I think of horror this way. Sometimes it's not so much the gun or the spell, or in this case, the evocation of Candyman that is the problem. It's whose hand is it falling into? And where there is this like cultural divide between people who sometimes just play with things just because, kind of like the little girl in the sequence where she evokes Candyman just because she's playing around with it um, Mm -hmm. and she loses her life. That's obviously not the right course, but what message it leaves behind is that if you play with this thing, something's going to happen. You know, like that's, that's kind of like the underlying thing. And when you fast forward to the events of this film and this church worshiping what used to be Daniel Robitaille, but it is now an entire Mm -hmm. hive, there needs to be this idea for religion to work in general. Cause like, I, and I don't mean to say this, like, I know it's going to maybe piss off people who are super religious. So I, I want to be careful how I word it, but a lot of religion is predicated on fear. And like, and like, if this thing happens, that thing is going to happen. And so I, I want to be careful, but I feel like y'all feel me. So I'm going to move gently to what I'm trying to say. This church of Candyman that they kind of talk about in this one, you're not in, you're not just dealing with an entity at this point. You're dealing with a hive, and as a result, the rage that has been personified into one entity is now a collective consciousness. Like it's it's much larger than it's ever been. If you play with this hive, your ass gonna get stung. I, that should, <laughs> you know, like in if you're playing around because you weren't raised right, you're gonna be in right. a situation. Versus, like, if you honor what Brianna honored in her moment, she evoked Candyman and kept yeah. her life. Mm-hmm. And there's something in that. Because if you think about it, like, in the 1992 one, Casey Lemons, who, you know, gave us ease by you, I, you know, I love my girl. But, like, when she evoked Candyman, I mean, well, she didn't even evoke him. Like, someone else did, and she just came to the door and ca, ca, ca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's 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 a different reality in this one. Like it's very intentional, mm-hmm. and I think there's something there that makes this like worth keeping and like worth celebrating. Mm-hmm. So, I have two things about that with uh, with Brianna's situation there too. Uh, and in the '92 one, I, I think it was Helen that it was the moment <laughs> Helen. Uh, if I was like, well, he wasn't gonna kill Helen, so we got you got to take somebody, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Bay. You can't touch Bay. It's like, it's not like, Bay. Exactly. Like, waifu's got to come with me home. So yeah. Uh, like, damn it, stop calling me because you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it, with Brianna, what I liked about it a lot, in in that the intricacy of it, I think two things were going on there that made it work that way. Because it is true, it's the only time in the movie, apart from Anthony, but Anthony was already stung and infected way before he evoked Candyman. It's almost as if Candyman like pushed him into the direction to do it, to really like tether him to mm-hmm. the situation. With Brianna, she was setting up the cop for one. So for one, yes, she has this intention. You see yeah. it in her eyes. She's like, I'm willing to accept what's about to happen right now just to get this guy with me. Taking you with me is basically what she was doing, martyring herself. But he says it last. I counted it last time I, I watched. She says it four times. He's, he says with the question mark, Candyman. And then 
that Cobb runs out dying. Mm. And it's her man who's walking out. <laughs> <laughs> man. Uh, and I do think there is something in that that is like she knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. because she didn't actually invoke him in 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 like it it's one of those is like I'll let you slide kind of things like mm-hmm. we know what you did but you didn't do it it's fine which honestly makes sense to me isn't that the way like it, it like any intercultural thing isn't that kind of how like you talk to people who who get you who who go through the same struggles you're kind of like yeah. I see what you did but it's fine you know? yeah yeah like, I understand what's going on right now I'm not blind basically mm-hmm. so i love that there's that nuance to it because that i felt was the kicker and i think that's why that scene works so damn well is oh, because yeah. there's it for people outside of knowing what that's like because you know especially if you're in like says white territory nobody really knows what it's like to have like coded nods or speak or whatever of how you just kind of like feel out the room to see who's kind of like picking up what you're throwing down you know yeah and because of that, I think it's the first time the a lot of portions of audience would actually be confronted with how confusing that can be, I suppose, if you're around it. You know, you're witnessing it. Mm-hmm. And that may come that may be why some people are like really confused with the ending of this movie. Yeah. I thought it was pretty clear as day that Candyman was just like Tell everybody we're good. You know? Yeah. That kind of thing. Like, yeah. That's I, have what a you know. I have a condition. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do love this analysis. I, I like that there are the, the multiple analyses for this, that, you know, there is that rage. And for me, that was what was, what would drew me into the character so much as this rageful little, little white boy growing up. I was just like, I get it. Just fucking kill everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do, not, do not call me here. I will kill you. you know, that's kind of like the thing I felt, but, and the, the respect part of it, you know, uh, I, I saw some analyses about this. Like, you know, if you do the Candyman thing, you're not really respecting the fact that he exists. You're, just, you're flat out telling him to his face, I'm doing this because you don't exist. Mm. And Damn. this this feeling, this entity is like, I'll prove it. Yeah. You know? And you can't, mm-hmm. you can't deny what happens. You know, you get in the news. <laughs> yeah. Basically. And you spread. This like is what happens when you deny this generational yeah. rage. Yeah, it doesn't matter exactly. who you are. You could be even part of that community yourself. And if you're the one to deny that and ig- or not ignore, but actively, I don't know. Antagonize? Yeah, actively antagonize that rage. You're getting got. <laughs> <laughs> Point blank. Yeah. Yeah. Yo. I, <laughs> that should be the blurb on the Blu-ray. Yeah. That should be on the back of the Blu-ray. Ryan <laughs> Kinney. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um Okay. Uh trying to think of like I mean, there's so much we can we can continue to unpack and I mean I can I can go for, for, for however long because like I don't sleep. Uh but Same. <laughs> I don't know if uh there's any like talking points that you had written down that you're like I really, really, really wanna like tackle this uh before we, we start to get to slow round off territory. Okay, wait, hold on, let me just think quickly. 
Go for it. I'm gonna check my. Because I, I, everything on my list we've talked about already. That's uh, good. Same so far. By the way, zero. <laughs> like my list has been exhausted. This is good. Good. Oh yeah. yeah. See, I told you we just be talking. I know. <laughs> I know. But I don't think so. I mean, y'all could tell that it was a sore topic, the health insurance thing for me, because I'm like, health insurance, and 20 minutes later, y'all are like, oh, okay. <laughs> that, that, that was the thing I had to get off my chest. <laughs> I will Venmo y'all after this, because that was like a therapy session for me. So y'all deserve some, <laughs> y'all deserve some coin. <laughs> Understand. Happy to contribute. No, that's what's that's what's fucking beautiful about this movie. There are these little these little tiny things that like you get it if you get it. Um, I, I hate that that had to be like something that people fight about on Twitter. It's like, why does this uh-huh. man go to the, the the hospital? And we're just like, okay, you clearly have never been there, but okay, uh-huh. it's it's authentic to to our cultural values, but not so much where it's you can't understand it if you don't have any experience or know anyone in that situation. Uh-huh. And granted, you're not an asshole and you can like open your brain for a second and just like learn and and listen and maybe harness something for the future. But please, I'm just going to reiterate, I really hope that we get more Candyman stories, specifically in a more intersectional way. Maybe we can like get into the women's perspective a little bit more, maybe the queer community a little, well, not even a little bit more, but just like in general, it would be like nice. Uh But um, intersectionality is king. And I think this was just a Candyman, Nia DaCosta's Candyman was like a huge step in the right direction. And I'm very proud of how it came out and how, how people understood it. I, I can proudly say that all of the negative opinions and comments and reviews of, about Candyman out there, I can just easily disregard because I just disagree. And I think the majority of people and of horror fans enjoy this movie for what it is. And even though it's one of those where it's, it's not really the, that surface level horror enjoyment, you might have to understand, you might have to retain a little bit more, but I, it's definitely not a chore, like not oh, even, no. not no. even close to a chore. I think uh, that uh, right. 98% of horror fans should should leave this movie saying, wow. And even if you didn't stick with you to the point where you would like to watch it again, I don't think that any horror fan would regret their time spent this movie. And let's be real. If horror is making you a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it doing its job? Hello. It's like, it's horrible or something. Oh my God. Imagine, imagine that just, (laughs) I I cannot even imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. <laughs> <laughs> We're being facetious, but I, I love that you, you bring this up. You know, uh, this is a great takeaway. And as I've mentioned really early on, it's, it's really a foundational part of the podcast is, uh, especially Zero, what you're talking about, that grace of just saying, I disagree. There's nothing wrong in disagreeing with things. And it takes, honestly, a lot of self-awareness and 
kind of just love for the things, genuine love for the things that you love to just say, okay, I just don't agree. Yeah. You, know, you can, you can filter it out. You cannot want the toxicity. You cannot want uh, to hear those negative opinions. Of course, you can go la 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 as much as we want to, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to have like a duel with every single disagreement. And um, you know, it's funny, like this is the first episode I've never really analyzed the, the quote that we brought in or I really delved into like philosophical terms and stuff. And I think, cause you just don't have to, when we're talking in the, the, this topic with this film that shows how intricate it is, how layered it is. But on that confrontational note, I think that's also a really good learning experience for exactly that part of what beauty is. And like there's objective beauty, but there's also the subjective taste that falls within it. And when we're getting into that territory, just walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do your thing. You know, nobody can take that away from you. It's your taste. Yes, that is correct. That part. <laughs> I'm ashamed I don't have this on freaking Blu-ray yet. Give me the freaking 4K. Get it? <laughs> yeah, please and thank you. Tomorrow they'll release it because you said that it'll it'll be announced <laughs> that it's coming out on Blu-ray. How much you want to bet? <laughs> oh my god, I would bet like a million dollars, but I don't have a million dollars, so I'm gonna just like bet you a prayer or something. <laughs> I, I'm I mean, down. I can bet for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, if we are uh, kind of tapped out with topics, I mean, I had plenty as well. But again, that's a testament to the film that there's just you can keep going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, maybe another time, maybe a repeat. We'll see if we ever revisit it. But uh, then I'm going to wrap things up a little bit here uh, so this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a screen pod squad be sure to follow the anatomy of a screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective semi-academic and fun podcasts including the scream teens hosted by gory Corey and lena the road to nowhere hosted by rc Hara, and much more you can find more info at anatomy of if you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or you know, horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic. And you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org, where I have a a few reviews that I'm going to be putting on there and articles. But so dear listeners, what are your thoughts on Nia DaCosta's Candyman? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beauty horror pod via email at beauty of horror pod at gmail.com or in our community space on discord. Be sure to check the Twitter page for the link to the server. I see that my cat is already giving her opinion on everything. So be as vocal as my cat. And please tell me what you thought of Candyman. I want to thank both of you again. Thank you so much, Ryan Zero, for sitting down talking with me about this just phenomenal, effective film. You can tell it's late at night the way the cat's freaking out. Um, but where can the the folks listening find y'all? And uh, are there any things that you'd like to plug? Uh, let's say let's start with uh, with Zero here. Well, folks, listeners, you can find me um, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Letterboxd. Uh, I, I guess TikTok now. I'm doing that. At least I'm trying. Um, at IDK Gravity. Because, you know, I'll be up there. No and no gravity. Um, I am throwing a Halloween party, which will be streamed live on Twitch this or next Saturday, actually. I don't know if this will air before then, but if it doesn't, we had a great time. (laughs) 
it's next Friday, so twenty ninth was the day before. Ho ho ho! Well, hey, listeners, tune in on Twitch. Um, I have a couple more fun things coming. Um, some more downloadable zines will be hitting you soon, and um, you know, spooky shenanigans with my with my friends online. Thanks for listening. And you, Ryan. You can find me um, wherever podcasts are played. Um, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and um, Brother Ghoulish's Tomb. So I'm also going to be releasing a limited series soon called um, Brother Ghoulish's Dragula Breakdown. Um, it's going to air this week. And I'm going to be breaking down the drag competition for the Boulay Brothers Dragula. Um, so I'm excited about that. But if you ever just type Brother Ghoulish, everything will come up. Um, I even have like www.brotherghoulish.com. So you can find out everything that I'm working on at the same time and all my socials and everything I'm working on. Um, yeah. So um, on the pod, what you can expect is horror movie reviews. And also I will share the occasional horror short story. At the time this episode's coming out, I'll, I'll likely be on break because after Halloween, mm-hmm. I go on a, a seasonal break in between seasons. So um, I'll be back for season three. And I don't know when, so don't ask me. <laughs> and if you want to meet me, <laughs> and if you want to meet me in person, I'm haunting an underpass near you. So there you go. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> Fantastic. And you know, this is a great segue into a bit of a talk that I need to give as well. So normally I just have like the, I thank everybody and we would close off and, you know, I keep a nice little scripted outro, but since it is a season finale, I have a bit of information for everybody. Uh, you know, uh, yes, just, just like you, Ryan. Uh, you know, you, you do need a recharge break and how to like. Okay, how am I going to plan all this out? Especially with guests and stuff. I need to also like get everybody situated. So, yes, we're going to go on break here. It's going to be for about a month. So, the month of November, there will be no more beauty of horror here on Anatomy of a Scream's feed. In fact, when we come back. We will no longer be on the anatomy of a scream pod squad feed. We're still part of the pod squad, but beauty of horror is getting its own dedicated feed. So it's a full fledged regular podcast. Finally. So please from this point forward from season two, you need to look up the beauty of horror. Uh, I do want to thank Joe and Valeska from Anatomy of a Scream for all the support they've given me with putting this together for for helping me with any tips, tricks, anything like that. Tech, uh, it's been wild trying to get this thing running, and then insecurities popping up here and there. And Joe's been a great sounding board. And so, Joe, you're 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 fucking awesome. Yeah, I hope you know that, and I hope you're listening. Probably listening because you know you support the shit out of the podcast. I know you do. Um, so thank you so much, Joe. Um, thank you everybody who's been listening to this as well. Another thing that everybody might want to know about the next season is, uh, I'm going to switch it up just a little bit. I think that's the, that thing that you can do in seasons. I think it's fun to do. Um, fun. I, we can only broach beauty so often. And so, although that is the main focus of this podcast, I'm sure season three will be dedicated to it again, but season two is going to branch out into aesthetics in general. And so to structure it just a little bit, since this, you know, I usually let guests pick things that's not structured at all. I I know that listeners love a good structure. (laughs) They love to know like a calendar when things are going to happen. Each quarter, roughly. So don't 
please don't fine tooth comb me and like, well, you said a quarter. I, you know, a rough <laughs> split it into four. Some of them are bigger than others. I don't care. It's going to have a different aesthetic category. Anybody who is a guest who has an interest in these things, of course, I will guide them a little bit of like what I'm talking about with stuff. But it's going to be as follows. We're going to start off with beauty because it is the beauty of horror. So roughly around, I'm going to say around the new year. Could be sooner, could be later. I don't know. Keep you surprised. But um, we're going to start with beauty. Then we're going to go into disgust. So we can open it up a little bit to films that people find disgusting and talk a little bit about the philosophical and political aspects of disgust and what that means. Then we're going to go into beauty's uh, twin, which would be the sublime. So we're going to talk about that real intense fear feeling we get that also gives us a real sense of pleasure. Uh, and then from there, we're going to round it off with the the kind of the, the crazy black sheep of the entire aesthetic family, the grotesque. So I would say that is the realm of horror in a nutshell. You know, that's you can't really get horror without the grotesque in some level. So I want to literally open it up the types of films that we can talk about a bit, talk about some films that I highly doubt anybody's going to say are beautiful. Um, so bring in the basket cases and all that sort of stuff. Let's do it. Maybe Malignant shows up. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> Point is, uh, so for anybody who is listening, who's like, oh shit, yes. Yep, that's for you. I'm very excited for it as well. Anybody's interested in being a guest, anybody approached for being a guest, that's what we're going to do. We're going to split it up and try to get people into discussing something that very specifically they want to discuss. And then, you know, roughly around what time of the year you'll be on the show based on which uh, aesthetic category you choose. But that's going to be the structure. It's going to be the beauty of horror on whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts. So really excited for it. I'm already starting it up, but first a break. So please let the man recharge and then we will come back stronger than ever. So as I always round off, I'm going to round off one more time. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no beauty here. Only death and decay. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.